0: Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the resurrection and the theology that derives from it with Dr. Ross Hastings, professor of theology at Regent College. He holds a doctorate not only in theology, but also in chemistry. He's the author of The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, exploring its theological significance and ongoing relevance. Dr. Hastings, thank you so much for joining us today. My
1: pleasure, Dennis. Lovely to be with you.
0: So, in your book, you start out by dealing with the question of the historicity of the resurrection. What can we know about the resurrection, and and what sort of um, case can we make for its um, factuality?
1: Yes, that's that's a great question. I have to say that the main thrust of this book is not apologetics. It's not demonstrating the evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in great detail. I do devote one chapter to it, um, um, but it's really the, the theological meaning and significance of the resurrection. And of course, that that must be built on a solid foundation. And I do believe in the historicity of the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I think it's all important. It's a cardinal doctrine. Um, if there is no rex- the resurrection of Jesus... Um, Then there is no faith, according to Paul. Um, A more contemporary, uh, more recent theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, said if there had been no resurrection from the dead, Gnosticism would be correct. Hmm. Um, So our whole faith depends on it. Uh, Therefore, looking for evidence um, in a faith seeking, understanding way is appropriate. We are an historical faith, we do believe there's strong. Uh, historical evidence for um, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I enjoy particularly what T.F. Torrance said about this, and this is in the opening chapter of my book. Uh, This resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a historical happening, not of the kind that fades away from us and crumbles into the dust, Hmm. but of the kind that remains real and therefore that resists corruption and moves the other way forward throughout all history to the end time, and to the consummation of all things in the, in the new creation. Jesus remains live and a real historical happening, more real and more historical than any other historical event, for this is the only historical event that does not suffer from decay and is not threatened by annihilation and illusion. So, um, yeah, and so just to say that I do believe in the historicity of the resurrection, and I try to give six lines of evidence for that, Um, But I'm very careful to say that this is not what we might call proof, as in scientific proof, or logical positivism might be another way of saying it. But rather, it's to say that all of the evidence that we have from biblical sources and extra-biblical sources would say, um, would indicate that this makes sense. that, That the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead makes sense of all the evidence, and that all alternatives to that um, just don't make sense at all. Um, so, on the one hand, I'm saying we come at this by way of what might be called critical realism, rather than logical positivism. But that isn't to back off from the historicity of Jesus and his resurrection, because actually all science is also done by way of critical realism. So, um, yeah. So, I, I, there are really six bullet points in the, in the first chapter. Uh, uh summarizing the evidence um for the resurrection of jesus so for example was the reliable reporting number one um the the bible authors arguing for the bible truths may seem like circular reasoning uh, this is of course unfair to these writers one of them luke is a very ironic and careful physician and historian for example and what's more these four writers agree on the major events that occurred during and around um, the resurrection Uh, and furthermore it's highly improbable that early Christians would have invented the crucifixion event and its sequel the resurrection the cross was as Paul says a stumbling block to Jews foolishness to Gentiles so why invent something like that Jewish people knew that to hang on a tree meant to be under a curse and so that is no way to glorify their messiah and so in a very unemotional and historically conscious way, these gospel writers describe the eyewitness accounts of the disciples and many others, and so give a very dispassionate and convincing account of the historical reality that Jesus was mm. indeed risen. And Tom Wright has pointed out that even though there are some small inconsistencies in the four accounts, so for example, the number of women at the tomb, the number of angels, uh, location of appearances, um, So although there are these uh, slight inconsistencies, this uh, in fact suggests that the authors naturally had slightly different purposes for how they used the accounts of the events in their narratives. And on the other hand, it confirms how recent the events were when described by these writers. So um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has suggested that surface inconsistencies, which may make the accounts appear to be careless fiction, rather constitute, to quote him, a strong point in favor of their early character. And he goes on to say that these stories exhibit exactly the surface tension which we associate not with tales artfully told by people eager to sustain a fiction, and therefore anxious to make everything look right, but with hurried, puzzled accounts of those who have seen with their own eyes something which took them uh, horribly by surprise." Uh, so th- this is, uh, that's one level of evidence. Um, and and I, I give five other levels of evidence as well. It's probably, probably enough for now, I would think. Um, perhaps the most convincing for me is the transformation of uh, the disciples who prior to the resurrection are cowards. Um, and after the resurrection become um, fearless, uh, fearless witnesses to the resurrection and are willing to give their lives for that. Um, if the whole thing had been a farce, surely at the last minute, Peter would have said, look, I, I don't want to be crucified upside down. I, it's all a farce. Uh, there is no Christianity. There is no resurrection. But no, he goes through um, his martyrdom, as did most of the apostles, because they knew, because they'd seen um, what had happened. And, of course, the apostle Paul also has a wonderful eyewitness account of of how he um of how he saw jesus on the road to damascus so um those are some of the evidences and uh, one can find out find more in 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 the book
0: yeah i agree that the um the willingness of the disciples to go to the lengths they did to suffer such horrible deaths shows a level of transformation that that the other explanations just don't yeah that too absolutely All right. So in chapters two through six, you talk about soteriology, that is salvation, um, as it relates to the resurrection. So in chapter two, um, you're talking about the atonement, salvation, and particularly justification and regeneration. So if you could um, go into more depth about what you're getting at there.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, This yeah the first those chapters that you describe um focus on the saving efficacy of the resurrection um and then the set, the last set of chapters focuses particularly on the ontological significance of the resurrection what they what the resurrection means for who Jesus is and who we are and what the resurrection will be uh, all related to being so ontological as the idea of being um, the, the the first chapters from two to six are really about uh, salvation, but they must not be separated from ontological realities. And I think sometimes as, uh, as scholars of salvation and even as popular evangelical preachers, we focus on things like justification and sanctification, and we isolate them from uh, the being of Jesus Christ um, and our own being. Uh, and so, for example, Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 4 that the resurrection is a an evidence of our justification. He was delivered over to death for our offenses and raised again for our justification. People haven't perhaps thought a lot about that great reality, that his resurrection um, is a signal, I think, Of God the Father saying, All that you have accomplished in your saving life and death um, is pleasing to me, and He raises Him from the dead. um, And therefore, we are justified. We are made righteous in Christ. We are constituted righteous. Uh, This is our status before God now um, because we are in Christ and He is risen from the dead. Um, And so, I, I rejoice in the truth of justification and the truth of sanctification. But there's something much more vital and fundamental that makes those two, what Calvin called twin graces, justification and sanctification. They are grounded in our union with Christ. And so the reason that the resurrection affects our justification goes back, first of all, to the incarnation, where God the Son took on our humanity, became one of us. That's an ontological reality. Um, So... The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on our humanity, um, and uh, there is a union of divinity and humanity, an unconfused union between uh, the Son of God and our humanity, and his taking on our humanity is crucial to all that happens after that. So he lives a life for us. He stands in our place, in death, for us, and then he rises again again. And he is the representative human. And that ontological reality is crucial to the salvific reality. So what what happens in the being in the person of Jesus is crucial um, to our salvation. When we separate the person of Christ from the work of Christ, there's an old title uh, to that tendency, which is called the Latin heresy. Um, the work of Christ is very much within the person of Christ. Uh, When Jesus dies upon the cross and endures our sin, um, he does so as the Son of God, who is both the judge, along with the Father and the Spirit and the triune Godhead, but he's also the one who in his humanity is the judged one. And uh, I argue that at the resurrection, uh, he is the one who as God has been participating in the resurrection act, but he's also man and he is both the, um, he is both the resurrector and the resurrected. Um, But the the point here is that something happens within the person of Christ that is representative for us as humans and those who believe in Jesus enter into that reality. But it is a reality, first of all, uh, grounded in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Um, our faith is a response to that. But the primary reality of our salvation is a son who has taken on our humanity, participated in our humanity, has gone to the cross, has stood in our place, has now risen from the dead, and we are represented in him. And, And a phrase I use in the book a lot is that the Ordo Historia is the Ordo Salutis. And I know I need to translate that. So the Ordo Salutis is the order, uh, sorry, the order uh, Historia is what happens in the history of Jesus. The order of what happens in the history of Jesus becomes for us the order of our salvation. And we must never separate the, those. The history of Jesus Christ is the very basis and grounding for our salvation. Um, so uh, that in, in a nutshell is uh, what I'm saying in this, in this chapter. Um, I am saying that these four chapters five chapters are about salvation, but you can never separate that from the very being of Jesus Christ and the being of the triune Godhead and how that affects our humanity uh, maybe to speak of that in a slightly different way that may be helpful is it's' to, to think about um how going back to the church father Irenaeus who spoke of Jesus as the recapitulation of adam um the so We all have participated in the story of the first Adam, uh, which has brought for us guilt and the power of sin and the penalty of sin. Um, But Jesus has become what we sometimes say is the the last Adam. And I like that. That's better than the second Adam. He's not the second Adam as if there's a third Adam, he's the last Adam. He's the eschatos Adam. And he represents all of humanity. And in all that Jesus does for us, he, 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 he recapitulates humanity. And um, the New Testament is clear that we are in that last Adam, and therefore, as human persons, we are not just justified, we are actually regenerated as well. Um, the resurrection of Jesus is the basis and grounding for the, uh, the movement from death to life within us that enables us then to exercise faith, and to know the reality of being justified by faith, and then beginning the journey of sanctification uh, by the Spirit.
0: Could you be uh, more specific about what you mean by regeneration?
1: Yeah. So, regeneration, um, both uh, Jesus and uh, Paul speak about uh, new birth. Um, Paul really lays the soteriological foundation of that in anthropology. That is, he, he says quite categorically that as a result of um, Adam and, and our sin in Adam, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're not even capable of responding to the gospel. Um, and so even prior to uh, the first signs of our new life in faith, there is the work of the Spirit regenerating us. Um, and and that work of the Spirit, of course, is applying what happened at the resurrection um, the resurrection has a spiritual consequence for us in the latter part of the book. It also has a physical consequence for us in terms of the resurrection of the dead. but right now uh, when uh, we we are often when we come when we come to faith in Christ, we are often not aware that God has already been at work in us prior to that uh, our ability to have to have faith. A dead person can 't exercise faith, only a living person can, and so we are already regenerated and brought into union with christ um and then faith is the is the evidence of that it's the sign of that faith and repentance go together in that sense and um and then we become conscious of what is already true in god's eyes that we are made alive that we are um justified and that we are uh also uh seated at the right hand of the father because we are in union with christ so um Yeah, just to stress that um, in some senses, uh, we sometimes think of regeneration as that moment when I believe. But I I honestly think that in light of the whole New Testament teaching and uh, the teaching of the tradition is that regeneration begins prior to my uh, expression of faith in Christ. We are made alive first in order that we might believe and that we might uh, repent and that we might enter into the life of God in its fullness in Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit.
0: All right, that's a very interesting way to think about it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm sure that some others would take exception with that, but
1: yeah, uh, I, I'm sure that um, there are there are other views. So the Wesleyan view is that I think that we all have prevenient grace. All human beings have prevenient grace, um, but I think you know the the there's an awareness in in the tradition of. Our uh, death, our spiritual death, our incapacity to respond. I do recognize I am very Augustinian in this regard, and and I'm with John Calvin in this regard, and with Karl Barth in this regard, that we are indeed dead, and um, that the work of regeneration makes us alive. Faith is, if you like, maybe in one sense the first sign of our regeneration. Um, although it it all goes together, I think it's all it's all um, all of a one.
0: In chapter three, you talk about the person of Christ in relation to the resurrection, of course, but you also talk about his personal history and how it's connected to our history. What are you getting at there?
1: Yes, I. um, It's what I was saying just a moment ago. The order of historia is the order of salutis. So, what um, our salvation um, is grounded in the history of Jesus Christ. Um, So let me let me let me. Perhaps an example of this is is. It may be a stark example, but it's a good example, I think, is that when Tom, Thomas Torrance was asked, when were you born again? Right. Or when were you justified? When did you become a Christian? And he responded, I became a Christian uh, when the son of God became incarnate at the incarnation. Um, Karl Barth was asked, when did you become a Christian? He said, I became a Christian um, and I was converted uh, when Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. Um, What they're both trying to emphasize is that faith, our faith, which we experience when we come to faith, is not something that's added to a kind of partial salvation, but rather that our salvation is already complete in the history of Jesus Christ because he has acted representatively for us. He came into humanity he took on humanity as, a, uh, as an ontological entity. He lived for humanity vicariously. He died on the cross vicariously for us. Um, and he rose again. And in his person, um, yeah, he, he was raised again from the dead. And so similarly for us, because we are one with him, and he is one with us, um, we, uh, his history has become our history. Um, let, me, let me summarize it this way. The gospel is really about two great participations. First of all, the participation of God in humanity at the incarnation, by means of which the Son of God, the Son of Man, became representative for all humanity. He's the last Adam. He's the eschatos Adam. And um, he, uh, he he lives vicariously for us. He dies vicariously for us. He takes our guilt and replaces it in a wonderful exchange with righteousness. Um, he takes our death away and he gives us life. Wonderful exchange. Um, but that all happens as a result of that participation. God the Son coming into humanity for us. Then there's a second participation. How do we access what is already a reality? Um God's salvation is already a a reality accomplished in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Well, you may say, we do it by faith. That's true. We do it by the Spirit who enables us to participate in Christ um, in in a real sense. So God has become one with us in order that we might become one with God in Jesus Christ. We don't become God uh, in terms of the essence of God but we do become one relationally with God in Christ Jesus. And that happens through what I've been sharing with regard to regeneration and, um, and then our faith and our being justified before him. So we participate by faith in what has already happened um, in the life of Jesus Christ. I'm stressing here that salvation accomplished in the ontology, in the being of the person of Christ is complete nothing to be added to it. We simply appropriate it by faith. But faith is not something we add to make it complete. It's something we, we do with outstretched hands. Um, it's, a receptive, it's a receptivity, and even that receptivity is given to us by the Spirit of God. It is um, not something we drum up. It's not even something natural. Uh, even um, Even our response to God, I would argue, is um, is assisted, it is given to us uh, by God. It is, another word for that is engraced. Um, our, even our faith and repentance, it's all engraced. It's given to us by grace so that all the glory goes to God uh, in Jesus Christ. So that's what I mean by um, Ordo Historia is the history of Jesus Christ by means of which our salvation was accomplished in his very being and especially his resurrection as the establishment of a completed salvation. Um, uh, And then our our own personal history um, is when we, by the Spirit, are moved by faith to enter into union with Christ. It might be appropriate for me to talk about John Calvin just for a moment in this regard, because he, he really gave us a very helpful way of understanding this people tend to think of John Calvin as the theologian maybe of justification or maybe even of sanctification. But actually, John Calvin, first of all, is the theologian of union. And if you draw a little diagram, you would put union with Christ and then an arrow towards justification and an arrow towards sanctification. Um, What Calvin was trying to show is that the first soteriological reality for us is what has happened in the person of Christ. And all that comes to us by way of these wonderful twin graces, the duplex gracia, as he refers to them, all that comes to us as a result of our our justification, our sanctification, all of that comes to us because of our union with Christ. And therefore, he would say um, union with Christ is primary and every believer in Jesus is both justified and is being sanctified and they can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. Um, and so um, down through the the early history of the church, there tended to be a conflating of justification and sanctification. Um, we sometimes speak about theosis, especially in the Eastern tradition, and, and that's the idea of our union with, with God in Christ. Um, and there was a tendency as a result of that to put justification and sanctification as if they're the same thing. Um, what's complicated is that the New Testament sometimes does speak about positional sanctification as very much similar to justification. Um, We would speak about that as, um, yeah, positional sanctification, which is the same as justification. But there are also many passages in the New Testament that speak about our progressive sanctification. And I believe that's that's what Calvin means, that as a result of being in union with Christ, we are both wonderfully justified. We have, as Karl Barth would say, we've had the righteousness of God pronounced over our heads. We had nothing to do with it. I wasn't there when Jesus died and rose again, and yet I was justified there. Um, and so this marvelous reality of justification, which I think has come under um, strong critique, even by evangelical theologians. We, 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 I think we, we neglect our great heritage of this grand theme of justification. We've been pronounced righteous, accredited righteousness, imputed righteousness, if you like, Um, pronounced over our heads marvelously. Karl Barth is the great theologian of justification in that regard. But in addition, uh, you can't claim to be justified. You can't claim to be in union with Christ if you're not also being sanctified. Um, We tend to put the Spirit with that, the justification through Christ and sanctification by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, They are both an outflow. They cannot be separated. So the person who says, I'm justified by faith, I'm forgiven, I can live as I like. Um, No, if you are in union with Christ and truly justified, you're also in the process of being sanctified by the Spirit, and that sanctification is one aspect of your assurance of salvation. Um, But uh, yes, Um, and, and, and actually Karl Barth added a third triplex gracia, he said, as a result of our union with Christ and his union with us, we're not only justified, we are being sanctified, and we have vocation. That is, we are on mission, because Christ is the missional son sent by the missional father, and, and the son works now, has, has imparted the spirit to the church, and so we are, our very fundamental nature as those in union with Christ is to be on mission with him, which becomes, I think, a right. very exciting notion for the, the church.
0: And we'll deal with that more in chapter five. Yeah. So, um, can you say, uh, talk more about the Christus Victor model of the atonement that you bring that up in chapter three also?
1: Yeah, chapter three. Um, yes, indeed. Um, I think there's a tendency. So, if we talk about atonement, um, theology of the atonement, have, I've written a book on the atonement that's called Total Atonement, and uh, more of what I'm about to say could be found in that book. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there are a number of models of the atonement. I argue that in in that book, there was only one real theory of the atonement. There are a number of models of the atonement. Christus Victor is one of them. So I have argued that the way to see the atonement and the way to see the resurrection also, which is part of the atonement, is to say that uh, God became one with us Participation of the Son of God in humanity, in order that we might become one with God through faith. We, the participation, our participation in Christ, what we sometimes call "unio cum Christo," and also "unio mystica," our being one with Christ and one with the Church. Right. So, um I will. I argue that that's the the only way you can understand the atonement is to understand that Jesus is acting vicariously for humanity. Uh, some people have accused the theology of the atonement of being unjust. How can one person pay for the sins of the others? And my argument to that is participation. Jesus is not just acting on his own. He's acting as humanity, for humanity. He is the representative of Christ. So that's the theory of the atonement, which I think is the best way to look at the atonement. But within that, there are a number of models. And one of them is... um, One of them is penal substitution, and I argue for the legitimacy of penal substitution if we understand it in a properly Trinitarian way. And then I argue also for Christus Victor, and I say they're not mutually exclusive. They are both valid expressions of the atonement. You find them both in the tradition. Admittedly, the Christus Victor seems more prominent in some sections of the tradition but I've been delighted to see penal substitution not just in the Reformers, but also in Thomas Aquinas, for example. So, um, so coming to your question, Christus Victor, the resurrection is a key part of Christus Victor. Christus Victor is the idea that on the cross and then specifically in the resurrection, um, the representative son of God effected a victory for all humanity over sin and death. Um, and hell, uh, so over over the power of sin in particular, and over over death, um, and which is the consequence of sin, which is very much a, a ontological way of thinking of the atonement. So, so Christ's victory has validity, has great validity. But um, I have argued in my book on the atonement that penal sub uh, uh, the. Christus Victor model actually only has validity if there is the penal substitution model,
0: hmm.
1: um, and so Hebrews chapter two, through death, he has destroyed him who had the power of death. Um, that that that's the part that we co- quote when we we're talking about Christus Victor. But I'll just look up look up my text here so that I don't get this wrong. Um, but Hebrews chapter two. Uh, Go, goes on to say, for um, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers, so there you have participation, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Um, I would argue that if sin is not dealt with on the cross by the Savior, uh, let me put it another way, if God doesn't justly deal with sin by way of penal substitution properly understood then there is no grounding for Christus victor. Let me express that let me express that another way that the primary way we think of Satan for example in the New Testament is as the accuser. What Jesus does in his taking our sin upon him and all that that means all that the sacrificial model means how he becomes our burnt offering our sin offering our peace offering our um yes our sin offering our trespass offering he does all of that he fulfills all of that sacrificial stuff and he deals with sin and god is just and the justifier of him who believes in jesus um and if were that were not so, Satan would not have been silenced because he is the accuser. He can accuse no longer because sin has been atoned for. Sin has been propitiated justly. Um, and the resurrection is simply, yes, a great triumph over death. So the resurrection is itself part of the atonement in its full ontological sense, because death is replaced by life in Jesus. He conquers it and rises again from the dead so that we may rise again from the dead. But um, Jesus rises again also also from the dead because that is a, a symbol. It's a sign of his conquering of sin and of God being satisfied with the work of atonement.
0: All right. That's yeah, really rich. I haven't heard it put that way before, the way you tied the two models together. Mm. So, in chapter 4 you're talking about transformation, progressive sanctification and yes. you're also talking about theosis or deification. Yes. You could go into you've already touched on those of course, yes. but if you could go into more depth, that would be helpful.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's a wonderful theme, I think, in Paul's epistles when he talks about sanctification. He majors on the resurrection as well as the death of Christ. So the, this chapter is devoted to um, not justification this time, but sanctification. Sanctification is a, you know, how we are made holy, how we are made like Christ in its essence. And it's, it tends to be, a, I think for many Christians, a painful theme because we, we feel as though often we're not progressing very much. And we take one step forward and we take two steps back. And, um, and so I'm trying to address that kind of defeatedness. Um, well, first of all, I am I want us to be realistic. Um, I hold to an Augustinian view of sanctification, which is one in which we are active, constantly overcoming sin. We're not passive. We don't sort of have one experience of the Holy Spirit, and from then on, all is hunky-dory, and we, we have no problems with temptation and sin. No. It seems to me the New Testament teaches that we are constantly to live out our union with Christ actively, and actively live out our union with Christ in resurrection our union with christ in death our union with christ in resurrection and that that involves activity it's, it takes hard work and um and it's also realistic in the sense that we won't be perfect until uh, the day when we see jesus and then the fullness of the resurrection will come to us we live in the now but not yet uh, the already but not yet so uh, it's important to 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 be encouraged by the fact that we are not perfect and um and that's why i think every church service does need to begin with confession it it we are we are bringing the people of God together in confession to say we are not perfect, we are strugglers. We are, um, we are, as uh, Luther would say, holy justified and holy sinners at the same time. Um, but we are on a journey, and Calvin represents that journey, I think, very well—the journey of sanctification in union with Christ in death and resurrection. But going back to Paul again, um, I honestly think that um, that sanctification, according to Paul can be summarized as two things, mortification and vivification. Mortification means putting to death the things you know have been crucified by Jesus at the cross, the self-life, as in our selfishness and self-orientation, into all of the vices that Paul speaks about in a passage like Colossians 3 uh, and so on. Um, And so... We are daily in the business of putting off the old in union with Christ, um, and putting on the new in the power of the resurrection. Again, in union with Christ, what does that mean? Um, it means putting on the graces that we know Christ has, and that we, because we're in Christ, uh, we can participate in those graces in a wonderful way. Virtues that we talk. That we see, for example, in Second Peter chapter one, how do the virtues develop within us? Not because we have them in and of ourselves, but because we are in participation with Christ. In that great passage, um, Peter Peter talks about the fact uh, of we participate in the divine nature; we partake of the divine nature. Um, so, um, our pursuits of sanctification are not to be legal; they're not to be. Uh, they they flow out of union with Christ. They come to us because we are justified, not in order to be justified. There's a great freedom in the pursuit of sanctification if we know we're already justified and that the power for our sanctification comes from our union with Christ in death and resurrection. Um, I speak about uh, the, uh, the great spiritual theologian um, who died recently. Um, uh, his name just won't come to my mind right now. Uh, he, uh, he, 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 wrote a, uh, he wrote a number of books on Christian sanctification and uh, stressed that the spiritual practices, the spiritual practices that we, that we talk about often at church, perhaps, or in our small group Bible study, we talk about spiritual practices. Well, spiritual practices need to be given, need to be practiced under two headings, practices of mortification and practices of vivification in the resurrection of Christ. So practices of mortification are things like fasting. There are things like confession and repentance, um, silence and solitude and Sabbath, cessation from our work. The practices of resurrection are worship and praise and reading of the scriptures, um, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, um, all of those things. So I, I just want to organize, um, organize those, those, those great themes um, uh, uh, in 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 the way that this spiritual theologian, I don't know, if Dennis, if you can remember his name, it'll come to me in a in a moment. Are you talking about Dallas Willard? I'm talking about Dallas Willard. Thank you so much. Dallas Willard does the best job I've um, that I've ever read in terms of putting union with Christ and our communion in Christ by the Spirit together with the spiritual practices. Because if we don't do that, spiritual practices can become a new form of legalism. Um. Our sanctification, our pursuit of sanctification must be evangelical. This is a point I make in the book a lot. In other words, they are gospel empowered and they rest on gospel realities. Um, they mustn't become new forms of legalism. So um, <clears throat> I just, uh, that, that's, uh, now one, one uh, I did mention theosis and deification, and I, I expand on that a qu- quite a bit. There's a lot of Consonance between Protestant and Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views on how we are transformed. We can learn, as Protestants, very a great deal from Catholic our Catholic brothers and sisters and theologians who have written on um, our practiced union with Christ and the spiritual practices. We can learn a lot also from our Eastern Orthodox. Um, theologian brothers and sisters in Christ who have spoken so much about theosis. Um, Theosis is, um, I think sometimes Protestants react to the term theosis as if it sounds like we're going to become God, which sounds like Mormonism, um, pantheism. No, that's not at all what the Eastern Orthodox meant by that. Um, Athanasius, who was, in my opinion, maybe the most brilliant theologian in the whole tradition, he was too smart to advocate participation in Christ or theosis deification in such a way that would compromise the integrity of God and humanity. He didn't mean that we, <clears throat> he made some outrageous statements uh, to our view for, for our listening ears today, when he said, uh, God became man in order that man might become God. That does sound like um, <clears throat> a confusion of God and humanity pantheism But he didn't mean that. He didn't mean that we'll become the essence of God. What he meant would be that that we'd be in relationship with God, that we'd be like the Son of God. And so there's a whole tradition of moving towards sanctification and in the life of sanctification in fellowship, in relationship with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um. And it has been made possible to us because of the resurrection as we live into the power of the resurrection. And so today we have Protestant forms of deification. Um, I think Calvin, for example, was not comfortable with the term deification, but was comfortable with the concept of participation, and his theme of union with Christ and justification and sanctification is very much a form of uh, of theosis, I think, Um and um, and so we have a form of it also in Karl Barth. We have a definitely have a form of it in Jonathan Edwards. Uh, my doctoral work was studying Jonathan Edwards and his view of participation. He strongly emphasised the role of the Spirit in the Trinity and the role of the Spirit in the Incarnation and the role of the Spirit in our regeneration. And um, speaks precisely about participation in the life of God. Uh, and my book on that that uh topic is called the life of god and jonathan edwards and uh it's all about his view of participation he is thought to have borrowed from gregory of Nyssa, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: so surprising that in our protestant heritage there's much more about um this idea of deification sanctification deification um and uh, divinization or theosis in our heritage and when properly understood, is not a compromise in any way um, of our identity. We become like Christ, and one day we will be fully like Christ. And yet, the same at the same time, we will still be humans. Um, proper understanding of deification does not make us divine in that essence sense. It makes us more fully human. And uh, all who, all the good Protestant writers who are writing about this. Um, make us very aware of that.
0: And that's very good news. Mm. Uh, Chapter 5, you already touched on it. Um, Because of the resurrection, we have mission, we have vocation. How are our lives on mission and vocation connected to the resurrection?
1: Yes, indeed, that's a a great question. Um, When we look at the biblical story, what we find is that Jesus is the recapitulation of the first Adam. He is the last Adam. The first Adam was given the Imago Dei, the image, the image of God. It was pronounced over the first two human persons. And they were, I believe that the Imago Dei has everything to do with relationality. It has a lot to do with ontological function, our capacity for thought and reflection, But thirdly, there was a vocational dimension to it. That is, God no no sooner says, in the image of God created you them, male and female created them. Now go and multiply and also renew the earth, till the earth, engage in vocation. Um, And and, and in a nutshell, um, vocation has been, as a, continue to be part of what it means to be image bearers, but it's been very compromised by the fall. So we struggle with work and vocation often, and our workplace has worked against care of creation. It has caused pollution. And now we are in this desperate state in our world of climate change and so on. Um, So the fall uh, uh, has caused all that compromise to vocation. Um one of the greatest texts about the image of God, though, and, and the image of God theology cannot be complete until we come to the New Testament, where we find Jesus in Colossians chapter one called the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And the fullness of the Imago Dei is in this renewed Adam, this um this Adam who is recapitulated and and so, when you see the resurrection happening and you find this new Adam, this, this last Adam, um, we find in that the reaffirmation of creation and the reaffirmation of what Adam was meant to be. Um, and so, we as the people of God who are in that last Adam, we are to be also recapitulating what God intended for his image bearers. And so I argue in this chapter that um, our human vocation is recapitulated, is reaffirmed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this is where it becomes exceedingly practical. Um, Our our vocation is a reality as Christians because there is a caller. God has called us. Christ has called us into mission and into the fulfillment of what Adam began but could never fulfill fully. Um, But there are also individual vocations. You know, if you go back to Genesis chapter 4 and 5, you find the first scientist and the first artist. There was Jubal and Jubal's band, the first artist, and there was this other chap who engaged in metallurgy. Um, And you get a sense of the sciences and the arts being birthed in Genesis. And so I believe when you see the resurrection of Jesus, you see the last Adam, and you're meant to say, "Oh." This is a calling, Uh, everyone in in this resurrected Adam, because we are human in him, we are called to recover human vocations, vocations as scientists, vocations as as artists, vocations as economists, Um, and all of that to fulfill the mission of God. Um, So resurrection, you know, resurrection is the kind of, if, if you like, it's the epitome of the the sentness of Jesus. Jesus talks about himself, or Jesus, John talks about Jesus as the sent one, um, right through the gospel of John, and then in John chapter 20, we find Jesus standing in the midst of his disciples saying, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, he isn't just saying, look, I've been a good example of being a sent person. Now go follow my example. No, no, it's much more profound than that. Because I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, and now because you're in me by the Holy Spirit, you are by identity, sent ones. Go live out the vocation to which I've called you. Um, I, 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 I hate to sound like I'm promoting my own books here, Dennis, but I have written a book called Missional God, Missional Church, which is precisely about that passage. And how God has called us to live out the resurrection mission of Jesus in three different ways. We tend to think of mission as the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, and, and that's very crucial. Don't, I don't want to minimize that in any way. But that Great Commission belongs like an inner circle within a larger circle of, God's, of Jesus' greatest command, the Great Commandment, which was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which involves justice, caring for people, um, it, it involves compassion. So you can't actually make disciples outside of the context of loving your neighbor. Otherwise, they'll feel like they're being manipulated. You don't really care about me. You just care about my eternal soul, but you don't really care about me when in fact the gospel is for whole persons, not just for so-called souls. Gospel is for whole persons to, to discover their life in God. And so you've got this other circle called um, the great commandment, but that great commandment comes in the context of the whole biblical narrative, which has the cultural mandate at the beginning, which is our calling to be human, which is our calling to work, to care for creation. So that the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the last Adam is our call, yes, to the great commission, yes, to the great commandment, but yes, also to what it means to be fully human. Back to that theme again to be fully human as in we don't bring people to Jesus just so their sins are can be forgiven and they can be justified and begin to be sanctified, but we call them so that their beings are transformed so that they're restored into being fully human so that they gain a sense of meaning about their work. Um, and that they do their work with respect to their neighbor and, um, and they do their work with respect to care for creation um, There's no such thing as a Christian who's not concerned about creation because that is our cultural mandate.
0: And uh, the last chapter in your section on soteriology, you're talking about what Christians will be in the future, what our resurrection bodies will be like, um, glorification of our bodies. What is all going on there?
1: Yeah, that's... um, of anticipating the second part of the book but um it's 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 uh you know it's jesus saying because i live you shall live also it's paul first corinthians 15 telling us that our bodily resurrection is grounded in his bodily resurrection um it's looking to the resurrection of jesus as a way of understanding our resurrection so for example People often ask me, you know, will I? what will I look like and will I be known as who I am now in the age to come? And my answer to that is very confident yes, because of Jesus, his example. After his resurrection from the dead, there are some continuities with who he was before. So much so the disciples, when their eyes are opened, actually see, oh, this is Jesus. And they recognize him as Jesus. Um. And on the other hand, there are some discontinuities he's able to pass through walls. So our resurrection bodies, I do believe, and, and I believe I have the, the text of Scripture and the tradition. Those are big statements, and I can't go into them on this call. But I think the text of Scripture and the tradition together would confirm that you, you are not just, it's not just the resurrection of the body generally. It's the resurrection of the flesh as in your particular sarks, your particular body. And you will be known just as Jesus was known. Um, and, and so there's great hope here. We live in a very uncertain world. We've just been through a pandemic. We're not quite sure it's over. Um, and there was such loss of life. And now we are threatened by um, a terrible war. And who knows where it may go. Um, you know, while on the one hand we don't just sort of gather on a hill somewhere and wait for Jesus' return, um, I think that would be to misinterpret um, the eschatology of the New Testament. We're meant to be engaged in peacemaking, we're going to be engaged in the work of God in all of its senses until Jesus comes so that He will find us uh, not watching physically like sky like sky gazers, but actually watching our lives and watching um, in anticipation of His second coming. Um, and and all of that to say, I think there's great comfort here for us as the church that we need to be sharing uh, with the, with the world. Uh, Hilary of Poitiers, one of the early church fathers, said uh, with respect to the resurrection: "Here in my soul, trembling and distress, I found a hope wider than it had ever imagined that it had imagined." There's such a wonderful hope that we have uh, because of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I also, I think, in this chapter, get into but but what about and this is a much more difficult section uh, or difficult topic is what about the in between time? so when a Christian loved one passes away, what happens to them, and for me, this is more than an academic exercise. I lost my first wife to cancer fourteen years ago, um, and I confidently believe that she 's with the Lord, as Philippians one and second Corinthians chapter five affirm. Do I have all the answers in terms of how that can be? Um, no, I don't have all the answers. It seems to me that we are not. Uh, we must be careful about dividing the soul and the body, which let, kind of kind of leads to at least a Platonic, if even a Gnostic view. Um, we are embodied souls, or uh, enlivened, enlivened soul, uh, and, 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 and we are we are bodies and souls together. So how is it that my wife's spirit or or soul is with Jesus and her body is in the ground? How how can this be? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I simply would prefer to follow the clarity of Scripture on this rather than to worry about whether I might be platonic in my view uh, Mm. when I say that our inner being is with God in heaven. There are a number of evidences for the fact that our inner person is with Christ in heaven absent from the body present with the lord i de- i desire to depart and be with christ which is better by far paul says and jesus saying on the cross to the, the thief today you'll be with me in paradise right so those are those are grand assurances i think um without being able to solve all of the mystery of of the other questions um i will say this i do think our 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 inner beings are what we might call our souls are a reflection of our bodies. Um, I think it was John Polkinghorne who very helpfully asked the question how will God bring about our resurrected bodies in their specificity and their uniqueness, right? How will he do that? And, um, and then he answers the question in two ways. Number one, not a big thing for God to do that really, because he did, after all, invent <laughs> and create DNA. Um, and I think, I think Polkinghorne said that God probably has a store of our DNA back up in heaven, and somehow mm-hmm. that our bodies and our souls uh, go together, and that our DNA um, is, is, is uh, the basis on which he will rebuild our bodies. But secondly, he says, this is a really interesting one, your relational history will be recovered Uh, because that's so much part of your body and soul together. So um, those are some interesting um, aspects. But the point of the book is that the resurrection makes this hope possible. And uh, so so we're so glad for that.
0: Yeah, that's very encouraging. And on to your section, the last few chapters relate to ontology or being and the resurrection. So, you talk about the person of Christ, his identity, and we're talking about Christology here. What is uh, significant?
1: Um, Yes, indeed. It's, um, yeah, it's in some ways um, an appeal for, uh, to, to go back to an earlier theme of the book, to not... Uh, Neglect the being of Christ by focusing on what He has done, Um, and so um, you know that's that's the primary uh, one of the one of the primary messages um, of uh, of that chapter. Who is this Jesus risen from the dead? And the the consequent the um, answer of the New Testament is He is He is Lord. Um he is Jesus is Lord is our great profession as the people of God. Um so um that that's that's the, the, the primary the primary theme. I, I um I especially go into what I think is a missing piece in Christology because of how mysterious it is, um and that is the high priesthood of Christ. And I'm not sure which which chapter that's in, but but they're very closely related. I'm um chapter eight. Yeah, so, um, and perhaps for the sake of time, I can just sort of summarize those together and say one of the great, for me, one of the great realities that the resurrection prepares the way for is the ascension. Um, There is today at the right hand of the Father in the very Godhead, a man, and he's still a man, um, fully human, fully divine, we could argue, I suppose, the argument that Calvin and Luther had about how much his divinity affects his humanity and how much his humanity affects his divinity. Um, I don't want to go there right now. That's, a, that's for another day. But um, I do want to suggest to you that we, the church needs to grab onto this great reality that we have in the very Godhead a man who is our great high priest, who has accomplished her salvation— and the way the book of Hebrews kinds of, kind of records it is fasc- fascinating. It's almost as, as if they, the book of Hebrews doesn't even think about sort of the timeline. Resurrection, 40 days later, the ascension. It's more, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't that amazing? Um, because for the writer to the Hebrews, what's important is that he is seated. Um, that's the first aspect of the res- the resurrection the, the, the sorry the risen high priest he is seated at the right hand of the father he is therefore the king and he is also uh, seated as the priest because um, high priests in the old testament never sat down because their work was never completed but jesus has completed our redemption and has sat down at the right hand of the father on high wonderful thing to rejoice in but in addition to that um, and this is the mystery. He's not just seated. He's also standing because he ever lives to make intercession for us. This risen Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, praying for us, praying our prayers. Um, that's hugely comforting. Um, you know, if I think about my prayers, I'm, I've never yet met a Christian who is satisfied with their so-called prayer life. We all feel inadequate. We all feel like we're, um, we, we don't quite make the grade. And there are two answers for that. This is a Trinitarian answer to our feeble prayers that encourages us. Number one, that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Number one, Romans chapter 8. And then the Son intercedes for our, on our behalf, the book of Hebrews. Um, and he takes all of our prayers that are so imperfect, all of our praises which are so imperfect, they are engraced, they are lifted up by our great high priest and presented to the Father in a beautiful way. Uh, an old hymn I used to sing uh, growing up in my Plymouth Brethren days uh, was, um, to all our prayers and praises, he adds his sweet perfume mm-hmm. and love the sensor raises their odors to consume. Um, you know, if you're tempted to think that, you know, jesus worked our salvation for us that's his business now my my job is to worship him um your job is not to worship him apart from him our worship is engraced it's um and when we come together as the church we need to know that the principal worship leader of that church is not the person up at the front playing the guitar or or playing the organ um but rather that the The principal and primary worship leader is our great high priest who takes all of our prayers and praises, presents them to the Father as a sweet fragrance, um, as a sweet fragrance uh, to the Father, uh, who in turn pours back his blessing to us in the Son and by the Spirit as the gathered people of God. And that's kind of a liturgy for the life of the church.
0: As well as worship in that chapter, you also talk about preaching, including Christ's preaching. So, what does the resurrection have to do with our preaching and Christ's preaching?
1: Yeah. um, You know, when Jesus lands in the middle of his defeated disciples in John chapter 20, um, I think there you have a picture, John's picture of the church, Because John never mentions the church. How could he not mention the church, right? But he doesn't mention the Eucharist either, but gives us the most powerful teaching about the Eucharist, I think, in the whole New Testament in John chapter 6. So I think John chapter 20, when Jesus stands in the midst of his people, he constitutes the church. And how does he do it? By speaking shalom. And telling them the word of God. And then secondly, he points to his hands and his side, which I think is evocative of the Lord's Supper of the Eucharist today. Um, and I, I believe that that anticipates what will happen um, in the life of the church. We will think of church as primarily word and sacrament, word and, uh, depending on your, your tradition, word and communion, word and sacrament, word and Eucharist. That's what constitutes the church. Um And I therefore argue, and I know this is taking a bit of an interpretive step, but I think it's justified in light of of a few passages. When um, a preacher has sat under the word of God and has heard the words of Christ for the people of God and stands up to preach on Sunday morning, the words of man, the words of the preacher, the words of the man, the words of the woman, the words of the preacher become the words of God. For the people of God, because we are, if you like, the voice of the risen Christ for his people, first Peter four verse seven Peter says that the person who speak speaks speak as the very oracles of God. First Corinthians two speaks about the fact that, that, that the words of Christ uh, are what the people what the preachers preach. we become by the spirit the disseminators of the very words of God, and so I argue for a very high view of preaching that's very present, especially in the Reformed tradition, um, the Helvetic confession, um, and then reaches a climax, really in the view of preaching in Karl Barth. So I urge you preachers to uh, rejoice. that, And there's a condition upon it. One has to be preaching the word of God. One has to be exegetical. One has to be expository. Uh, If if you're not expository and exegetical, I don't know what word you're preaching, but it's not the word of God. And it's Mm -hmm. only as you preach The word of God, as it's explained, um, you know, I sometimes say to our uh, fledgling preachers here at Regent when I teach preaching, I would rather hear you stutter through an explanation of what this passage says, what it means and how it applies, than give me all the rhetoric and stories of the world, but don't touch the text or use the text as a diving board. So the resurrection of Jesus has implications. I think he is still speaking in his church. And he speaks through those who speak his word, um, the written word in which he encounters us.
0: In chapter 9, you deal with creation and God's commitment to creation. Mm-hmm. What is significant there um, in light of the resurrection?
1: Yes, uh, here is, um, again, the resurrection is the, uh, I make this link between the resurrection and creation, um, you know christian salvation is not taking us out of creation christian salvation is um it is our it is not salvation out of creation but our salvation as those who are human and are being called to become more human in creation god god has a plan for his creation the new creation is an important teaching in the new testament and so um we are we are called therefore uh, in light of... See, the resurrection affirms, reaffirms God's commitment to creation. That's an important interpretive step in my book. Um, what am I, I'm not the first to make it. Oliver O'Donovan makes this point very eloquently, much more eloquently than I do, I'm sure. Um, and it's simply this, that the, the, he believes the resurrection of Jesus is the reaffirmation of creation. It's the reaffirmation of humanity, but it's the reaffirmation of creation. What does he mean? Well, Jesus rises again in a body, a created body, a human body. And it's as if God is saying, what I created in Genesis 1 and 2, it was good, but it was not complete. It's not complete until the last Adam shows up, and he'll be the one who completes the new creation. Um, And there will one day be, I think, an intervention from the future of Christ returning, but in the meantime we as the people of God are meant to hear the cultural mandate given to the image bearers of Genesis 1 and 2, and we are restored to being image bearers, and we grow by degree into image bearing more and more. And that's not just being more holy in an ethereal sense, reading my Bible more. It's caring for creation, looking after creation, um, looking to my work to make sure that it enhances creation and doesn't destroy it that it uses the resources of creation but does not um, deplete it. Um, and so I'm, I, that, this is a chapter in which I argue for creation care for the people of God.
0: So we briefly talked before about, um, as evidence for the resurrection, that the early believers were willing to face death. So you also talk about ethics in this chapter. And it seems... To me that if somebody 's uh, struggling against an oppressive regime and they have the sanction of death over their head, but they know that they will rise again, it gives them that knowledge gives them a lot of empowerment to face whatever evil they 're up against. What are your thoughts on that
1: as I had never thought of that I, when I talk about the resurrection and its relationship to ethics i 'm um, talking about uh, you know, largely I get this from Oliver Donovan's work in his great book, Resurrection and Moral Order. It's a difficult book to read, but it's a, a profound book in which he says that when Jesus rises from the dead, creation is reaffirmed, and with that, a moral order. It's kind of what you might think of as kind of a form of natural law, but it's 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 definitely a natural law empowered by the gospel. He's very concerned to make ethics evangelical not legal that is it's a it's part of the gospel you know ethics can become legalism ethics can become moralism and uh, and death but ethics flowing out of the gospel is life and so he really emphasizes that but now your point is a very interesting one i'd never thought about that before and that is the the reality that we're willing to face death for the cause of the gospel and sometimes in the business of defending important ethical positions, knowing that we shall be raised from the dead. Um, I'd never thought of that. That is another way of thinking of resurrection ethics, um, and, and it's a good thought indeed, and it needs to be developed.
0: All right. And finally, um, you deal with uh, the parousia, or the, the second coming of Christ, yeah, and the the connection between the resurrection and that. Uh, up and coming event, so could you go into some detail about your thoughts on that
1: um yes, i can indeed um it's um yeah so this is really taking us into the realm of um eschatology um, uh, in its and um uh, in its fully worked out sense um, the you know uh Mostly what we hear discussed by Christian theologians in our time is what you might call inaugurated eschatology. That is, the resurrection of Jesus has brought in the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come. And and many people would equate the kingdom to the church in that regard, that the church is at least the sign and the sacrament and the messenger of the kingdom of God. It's certainly, I think, a center of the kingdom of God. Um, So all of that is part of what we call inaugurated eschatology, and it's very much dependent on the resurrection of Jesus because as the risen one, he is the king, he is the Lord, um, uh, and so he has brought about his kingdom. And very much the task of the church is to um, receive that kingdom, to be engaged in mission, in all three ways—the cultural mandate, the gospel, the uh, uh, justice, and the great commandment—and the great commission—all of those three go together. Um, and and we rejoice in the fact that the kingdom has come. It also brings with it a realism that the kingdom has not yet fully come. And part of, I think, of a of a good eschatology is to say the kingdom has come. We may, in faith depend upon the power of god for the proclamation of the gospel for all of our efforts in justice and creation care uh etc etc we are empowered by the spirit in that regard and we can have some confidence and we may even see uh miracles from time to time as god does those things um and yet this is the now but not yet of the kingdom this is the uh, this is the already but not yet so therefore we don't get triumphalistic We don't start guilting people because they aren't healed when we pray. For example, Um, we believe the kingdom has come. and has not yet fully come. And in that era, we need a theology of suffering as well as a theology of healing. Right? Um, But then this anticipates the day when our faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back, and we shall see Jesus for who he is, in his risen power, and we too shall be resurrected. Um, and, yeah, I, I skillfully avoid taking positions in terms of how that's going to happen, as in our mill, pre-mill, post-mill, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I, I do have, have a position, but I'm not really going to declare it right now. Uh, I just think the important thing is that Jesus is coming, and, I, and I, I mourn, actually, that there isn't more preaching about the fact that he is coming. Um, and of course, you know, with that coming comes the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, um, and, uh, and the new heavens and the new earth. And those are the great things. They're, they're weighty things. Uh, but um, in light of the resurrection of Jesus and all that that has accomplished for us, we can be confident to face that future and know that we shall be, um, we shall be made like Christ. I mean, that very um, that statement right there that I've made requires some parsing and has all kinds of opinions about it. Um, You know, it's interesting. This is an interesting one. Jonathan Edwards, who is maybe in some ways the darling of reformed people, um, and yet, came away with some pre- precise, pre- profoundly challenging thoughts for uh, for Reformed theology. But he um, he believed, and this is part of his theosis teaching. He believed that when we see Christ at the second coming, that they that we will be transformed gradually, and almost in what mathematicians would say is an asymptotic way. That is. We move ever and ever more closely to what Christ is like, but we never quite Christ. And it goes off into infinity, an asymptotic curve. Um, and if math is not your thing, don't worry about it. But it's just the idea that we will gradually be transformed into his image, whereas other people would say, no, we are immediately uh, transformed into his image and the, the language of first john seems to suggest that, that when we see him we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is so in other words, you can't see the beatific vision and not be transformed profoundly um, so i'm longing for that day when i see my savior face to face and um, share in resurrection life and in whatever um, the new creation looks like it will be i think more earthy than we realize and yet there will be some discontinuity, some grand glory of that era. And and, and in that, um, the Lamb will be all the glory of Emmanuel's land.
0: Amen. There's great hope there. Yeah. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and we've uh, you've been listening to The Charge with Dr. Ross Hastings. We've been dealing with the theology of the resurrection. So uh, check out his book. There's the link below. The Resurrection of Jesus Christ Exploring Its Theological Significance and Ongoing Relevance. Uh, So, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Blessings to everyone.
1: Thanks, Dennis. Bless you.